And Lord, I pray that as we come now back to Hebrews 11, Lord, that you would speak today through your spirit, not through the cleverness of man, but through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit and the illumination of your Holy Spirit, that he who made it true can shine it upon our hearts, that we might see where we need to be corrected and rebuked, that we might see where we need to be encouraged and lifted up, that we might see you more clearly, see your character, see your name, see who you are, what you've done. And Lord, that we might ever be equipped for ministry by the teaching of your word, that as we minister together as a body, we might together mature into the image of your son. Amen. Amen. Okay, Hebrews 11. Last time we finished off on the banks of the Red Sea in verse 29. And uh, we had been dealing with, uh, with chapter 11 for what seems like an eternity. I'm not quite sure it's been that long, but... But we've uh, been through the patriarchs and we went through Moses and we finished up in uh, verse 28 with the Passover. So we're picking up now in verse 29 with the Red Sea and the Red Sea crossing. I just want you to look ahead very briefly when we finish this off in the next few verses. When we get to verse 32, it says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, uh, of David and Samuel and the prophets. And then he goes on. And I think that as we get to that point where he says, you know, what else can I say? There's all these guys as well. And at this point, he is deliberately saying, I could be doing this game forever. I could be showing you the Old Testament saints and showing you how in the Old Testament all of these people were walking by faith in God. That they weren't stuck to uh, the system. These, these guys attempted to walk away from the new covenant, to go back to the old covenant. And, and I think that the gist of chapter 11 in the context is, is by sticking to the old covenant, you're actually walking away from the saints who kept the old covenant. Because what they did is they walked by faith. And you need to trust God in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties, and just worship God as he demands to be worshipped. And so as he kind of rushes through this at the end, I'm very conscious that we've spent a lot of time, you know, as we've gone through chapter 11, looking at the Genesis and looking at the context. And look, today we're just going to finish it off. I'm going to do a little bit of, we could be doing this forever as well, you know. What more shall I say? And we're going to just wrap this up today. And so we'll go through it a little quicker, perhaps, than we have in previous weeks. So just a few observations as each of these things, rather than a, a, a long looking back at the passages. Verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. A couple of observations here. Firstly, um, you may be familiar with, I remember hearing this way back in my school days, um, that one of the uh, things, obviously, that the so-called liberal wing of the church tried to do is, is they don't like miracles. They don't like the supernatural. I mean, these things are tried to be blotted out of our Bibles. And it was written many years ago, someone came up with the idea that the, the Red Sea really wasn't 
the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. And that Moses crossing the Reed Sea was really just, it was all to do with low tides and, you know, mud banks and things like that. And so it wasn't really a miracle that they crossed the Red Sea. Well, in that case, the miracle is that the Egyptians got drowned. I mean, either way, you've got a miracle, haven't you? And, and it just seems to me ridiculous that people go to such lengths to try and avoid the obviousness of what the text is saying. God did a miracle. He parted the Red Sea. And you know what? We're talking about the faith of Moses. We're talking about the faith of Moses. And here he is, and he's, uh, we were speaking of this last time, that he's going through this whole journey of faith like Abraham did. And then we come to the Passover, and then there was this, there was this marking of the doorposts. And as I said to you last time, completely um, borrowing from D.A. Carson here, where he tells this wonderful story of the man who, you know, the hypothetical parable story of a man painting his doorpost with the blood of the lamb and saying, that's it, done it, job done, I'm covered now, I can go to sleep, forget about it, everything will be all right in the morning because I've done what God's required of me. The angel of death will pass over, there's no problem, we're good, we're fine, no problem. And then another guy putting the blood on the doorpost and not sleeping a wink all night. Petrified that his firstborn could die. And yet the angel of death passed over both houses. That's faith. And Moses, went, once the angel of death has passed over, once the Jews and, and those presumably associating with them, those worshipping Yahweh, had, had done the requirement of Yahweh and had taken that lamb, sacrificed that lamb, put the blood on the door, and seen that God had spared them, but more so seen the judgment upon the Egyptians, then they can stand on the edge of this, this not just a, a, a river, but this huge estuary area, this huge area of this mass of water, and stand there and put the staff down. Boom. We're going across. That's faith. How, how do you get faith like that? You get faith like that through seeing the firstborn die when the blood wasn't put on the doorframe. You get faith through seeing God doing what he says he's going to do. You get it through the experience of trusting God and of your miserable, weak faith failing and God saying, come on, let's do it again. Just like he did with Abraham. Come on, let's do it again. Until you learn to trust me. Until you have the kind of faith where you stand on the edge of the sea and you say, I've got no idea how this is going to happen, but here we go. That's faith. And so the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. You know, the parallels between verse 28 and 29, the parallels between the Passover and the Red Sea crossing are huge. Obviously, the parting of the Red Sea, the crossing of the Red Sea, is synonymous with salvation. It's a picture of salvation. The idea is that there they are enslaved in slavery in, in, in uh, Egypt, and they cross the Red Sea, and they're free from slavery. And in the same way, we are freed from the slavery of sin. And there, in Passover, it is the blood of the Lamb that enables them to go free, 
to enable them to have that parting of the sea. And for us, we trust in the blood of the Lamb, and we are freed from the slavery of sin, and we see that. But the thing that comes through so clearly in these passages is this, the destruction of those who don't believe. The destruction of those who don't believe. And you could be someone who says, I, I, I believe in Yahweh, I was raised a Jew, I'm a Jewish person, I, I believe in Yahweh, but he's, he's not being great to us. We're kind of stuck in Egypt here, and they don't treat us very well, and we, we used to be prosperous here, and we had a great time. You know, I know we came, God brought us here out of the land where the famine was, and now we are here, and things were good, but it's not good in my lifetime. I'm not having a good time. They work us hard, they beat us, they treat us roughly. We have this horrendous time. And Yahweh's not been so good to me. Kill a lamb, put blood on the door? I don't know. Those people perished with the Egyptians. Those people had the angel of death visit them that night. It's just this constant reminder that, that faith is not an all-to-call re emotional reaction. Faith is not, is not something whereby we, we just say, well, you know, I kind of believe in God because that's how I was raised and taught and what have you. It, you know, we get that our faith is imperfect. We see in this journey through chapter 11, Abraham and others who just constantly are told to do something and compromise. They constantly are told to do something and don't quite do it properly. That their faith is constantly weak. But there is faith. And faith is obedience to God. It's seen in obedience to God. This is why we need to be careful, because we understand that, that salvation comes through faith alone and not by works. We all understand that. Of course we understand that. But we're going to be studying, after the book of Hebrews, we're going to continue through these Hebrew Christian epistles, do 1st, 2nd Peter and James. And when we get to the book of James, we're going to have to wrestle with what James says about works. And these things are not in contradiction. Because when we have faith, we do things like going to a land that I will show you, even if we take Lot along with us because we're still weak in our faith. We do things like stand in front of the Red Sea and trust God. We do things in obedience to God as an expression of our faith. This country has been decimated by the all-to-call mentality that somebody, because they're emotionally impacted by a sermon and someone's playing the piano in a minor key and there's a little tear coming to their eye, that somehow they can come forwards, raise their hand when all their heads are bowed or what have you, and they can go back and live their lives as if nothing's ever happened and that somehow they've got a ticket to heaven in their back pocket. Nonsense. Utter rubbish. And yet, an entire generation of this country has seen religious people go to hell because of that thinking and that mentality. I cannot skim over these verses and say, yeah, they crossed the Red Sea, wonderful, without seeing the text deliberate pointing and the Egyptians drowned. We have to understand this. We have to understand the consequences of the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the consequences of not trusting in him. It's a very real thing. But there's good news. 
look at the progression of the text. I love how it all it just flows, doesn't it? By, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. I wanted to spend time in this, but I knew I wouldn't be able to. So I had Lauren read it for us this morning. And there in that story, they march around Jericho for seven days. On the seventh day, they march that seven times, and the walls of Jericho fall down. And again, we see the victory, but do we see the devastation? We see them conquering, but do we see those being destroyed? Notice as well the progression here in how we go from the Red Sea, which is the beginning of the wilderness wanderings, to the walls of Jericho, which is the end of the wilderness wanderings. To them coming into the, crossing the Jordan, coming into the land. And there in that whole story of Jericho, where they conquer. I mean, can you imagine how stupid that is? You know, we could use a bulldozer right now, perhaps. Maybe, it's, maybe some TNT or something like that, you know. I know, we'll, let's just walk around it seven times, you know. I mean, it, it sounds nonsensical, but that is faith. God says, I want you to do it away so that when it is done, People will know that it was you who was not doing it and me who was accomplishing it all. See, you're doing your bit in a way so that God gets the glory. It's kind of the story of all our lives, really, isn't it? He gets absolute idiots like, like us to do stuff so that people will say, wow, that God must be amazing because we couldn't. And I think sometimes we, we, we miss this. Sometimes somebody, have you ever heard people say stuff like, oh, if that person got saved, they'd be a great Christian because they can do this and this and this, you know. We got like our little wish list. In spiritual gifts do not, you don't have any spiritual gifts until you're saved. Do we understand that? That the spiritual gifts come with the receiving of the Holy Spirit at salvation. So somebody might be a great public speaker, but that doesn't mean you want them to get saved so that they can become a pastor and teach. Because we don't want good public speakers becoming pastors. Gosh, the devastation that's done in the name of Christ by people who are just good with words and take people away from the text and cause devastation in, these, in, in, in various megachurches where through the cleverness of human speech, they take people away from God's word. And Take your human gifts and, you know, maybe God can use them. That's great and what have you. But when God makes a, a, a new creation and gives gifts, you've got no idea what you're going to get. It's like Forrest Gump and a box of chocolates. That someone's been living their lives and they're gifted in this way and they're gifted in that way and God says, nah, we're going to do this. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, the Jew of all Jews, the one who is trained in Judaism beyond any other, the, 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 the top disciple of Gamaliel, the guy who is the one. Clearly, he's going to be the Apostle to the Jews. Now, you can go to the Gentiles. We'll have Peter being the Apostle to the Jews. You know? It doesn't work that way. And so, we have to understand that God is going to do things in a way that glorifies him and not us. And how much so we see this in verse 31. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. Because she had been given a friendly welcome to the spies. Honestly, that is a weird translation to speak of a prostitute giving someone a friendly welcome. I mean... <laughs> It's, it's, 
I think we underestimate the grace of God in this verse, don't we? I mean, if you, if you, you know, you go through the children's Bible stories, and, you know, my kids used to have one of those, um, those uh, illustrated children's Bibles, you know, and you come through these stories, and Rahab was just dressed like everybody else, and she was sweet and nice and what have you, and, and do you know, who would be the Rahab of today? It would be some some woman selling her body for sex that we would look down upon, desperately getting money perhaps to pay for a, a child to have food or pay for a meth habit, maybe. And we'd look on them with contempt. Churches like, like ours have historically looked on people like that with contempt. And God says, you, I'm having you. God has a history of doing this. John 3 and John 4. John chapter 3, here is the guy most qualified to be somebody who would be godly. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he was more than a Pharisee. He was, Jesus refers to him as the definite article, the teacher of Israel. It's a, it was a specific term that was used of people who trained other rabbis. He was the head of a rabbinical school. And Jesus says, now you've got to start again, pal. That you, you have no advantage with your background at all in that you, you see that I'm from God, that's wonderful, but you need to be born again if you're going to see the kingdom. You've got to understand the Pharisees had a, a teaching, a doctrine, that all of Israel had a share of the kingdom to come. You got to be in the kingdom just because you were a Jew. And he was not just a Jew. He was kind of a Jew who was above the Jews, who was above the Jews. He was like the head. He was top of the tree. And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. There was nobody who was good enough that they didn't need the grace of God. But then where does John take us in the next chapter? He takes us to the Samaritan woman by the well. The woman who was filling up her water in the middle of the day because she was ostracized not just by the Jews as a Samaritan, but by her own people because her morality was at a level that even they couldn't accept. A nation that was founded on immorality. And God says to her, you. The grace of God is such that nobody is good enough to not need it but nobody is bad enough to not be able to receive it. And Rahab is a wonderful Old Testament reminder of that. And I want you, maybe, maybe this has touched a few hearts, but go out this week and just chew on this. Think about how bad Rahab was. Think about what she was doing, how she was living, the type of person she was, right up to the point where she said, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to put my eggs in this basket. I'm going to take this side. I'm going to help these guys because their God is Yahweh and he seems to be a mighty God. I'm going to trust Yahweh. Was her motivation even good? It was, it was a case of, well, Yahweh's been doing a pretty good job of taking over the rest of the, the cities. I mean, ours may well go down as well. I think I'm going to pick the winning side. And she did. She picked the winning side. She picked Yahweh and she trusted in Yahweh. I'm not sure even her motivation was that great. Come on, you're not much better. How many of us kind of, you know, thought that, that maybe trusting in Jesus might, you know, we're, we're going to have this blessing, we're going to have that blessing. 
even if we weren't naive enough to think it would be in the physical realm, we'll talk about that in a minute, but even if we just thought it was like getting to heaven, that there's benefits and blessings to us, and God says, fine, there are benefits and blessings, and there was for Rahab. And she, she trusted them, she trusted Yahweh, and because of that faith, because she chose Yahweh, she didn't perish. <laughs> and look at the phrase, she didn't perish with those who were disobedient. She was obedient. The prostitute was the obedient one. And the people who ran the city, the politicians, the people who did work, the people who, who, who maybe did medical work and helped people, the people who, who had positions in society, they were the disobedient ones. They got killed when the walls came down. She was the obedient one. Get your head around that. And why was she obedient? She was obedient because she was obedient in faith because she trusted in God. There is, there is people after people in Scripture where, where the Bible gives us these lists, whether it's Nicodemus in John 3, whether it's Paul in Philippians uh, chapter uh, 3, um, and, and whether it's this, this, whole, this whole sort of this rigmarole of qualifications in the flesh, and yet it means nothing. The only thing that is going to matter for us at the end is this. Have you trusted Christ? Is your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith in him? Is he now the one who directs your life? Have you put aside all other gods? All other cares is Jesus yours. I convicted every time we sing that song. All I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. I got a zillion other things in my life. And the constant struggle is not to let other things distract me, not to let other things be more important, but to understand that all that matters is Christ. Being a pastor doesn't matter. Going to church doesn't matter. None of these things matter. None of them things count. All that matters is Christ and our faith in him. And that's why she was obedient, and we need to be obedient too. So verse 32, we're going to have to skim, as indeed the author of Hebrews does. What more shall I say? By the way, chapter 11, verse 32, in that very phrase, a masculine uh, uh, pronoun is used, and that those who would suggest that perhaps this anonymous writer of Hebrews would be um, potentially, um, Priscilla's one of the names that comes up, can't be, because a masculine uh, term is used here to speak of the author. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. That's quite a list, isn't it? That's pretty much the summing up of the rest of the Old Testament. It's like, let's go through Abraham, and he goes slowly. Now with the other patriarchs, oh yeah, and there's Moses. And if he kept it on at that speed, Hebrews would be a book of about 57 chapters. So he kind of pots it together at the end, and therefore I feel great liberty to do the same to some degree. He's got a bunch of triads here, little triplets, as it were, of things. The first one uh, we could perhaps put into the category of national victories. Conquered, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, and obtained promises. 
obtain promises. And Gideon, Barak, David all received promises in their time. And obviously, this is a, this is a very much a summary statement. Um, I'm just trying not to get distracted. If I get distracted into the specifics, I'm going to have 57 more sermons on this as well. So, you know, we're, we're very loosely summarizing. But we know of the many victories through the Old Testament uh, times that God has as examples. The second triplet is more to do with personal deliverance. He then talks about stopping the mouths of lions, quenching the power of fire, and escaping the edge of the sword. Uh, lions, you'll be familiar uh, with um, Daniel, but also Samson and David. Uh, power of fire, you've got Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or if you were brought up on VeggieTales, Rakshak and Benny. Some of you obviously were. Um, but yeah, the, so the, there's that. And then with the sword, uh, many others, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, uh, Jephthah, David. There, there, there are plenty of examples of all of these things. It gets more interesting when we get to the third triplet, which is more in the realm of personal gifts. Um, they became mighty, uh, sorry, before that. Uh, they were made strong out of weakness became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. You can see a nice progression there in the being uh, weak and made strong. Obviously, Samson and Gideon are, are part of that, as well as David. Remember, he started out with a little uh, slingshot and uh, progressed a little bit beyond that during his time. And so they go from weakness to strength in, in God, through faith in God. They become mighty in war. Joshua, we've just been seeing in the... In the uh, the Battle of Jericho, and then they put armies to fight. David, um, Jehoshaphat again, and there are many examples of all of these things. And I think that the point in just rushing this is he's saying, look, you've got all of Old Testament history showing you what God accomplishes when you have faith. And he's saying to them again and again, do you have faith? We'll come back to that. Uh, verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Isn't that an interesting one? You know, it's fascinating, and we, we, we may get there next week, but it's fascinating that God routinely seems to allow women to have a special privilege in witnessing resurrection. Happens at the resurrection of Christ, and it's often mentioned, but it's also an Old Testament concept. And so... There is the uh, widow of uh, Zarephath, if I pronounce that correctly. Uh, Elijah uh, raised her from the, from the dead, this, uh, and sorry, her son. And then the Shumanite woman, again, Elisha was the witness for that. And there seems to be an Old Testament background to uh, women being there when resurrections were seen. And therefore, it... it See, no, I love this intertextuality. It's fascinating to me that when we come to the New Testament, this isn't a new thing that the women are there to witness the resurrection, but rather it's something that, it's something that goes back to Old Testament times. I haven't prepared or chosen a passage for next Sunday yet. I've got to do something on resurrection. I'm kind of, oh, maybe, yeah. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll look at this old New Testament link and the women's role in resurrection. That might be interesting. You ladies will have to turn up for that. Um, women will receive back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured 
refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. It's interesting, isn't it? He has this constant contrast. Parting the Red Sea, crossing over on dry land, being drowned by the Red Sea. Jericho, victory, people being destroyed. And here we have women receiving the blessing of resurrection. And then we have, in the same verse, others who, because of faith, they had to trust in their future resurrection. That their faith led them to the point of death. Refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. I hate keep mentioning it, but you know, that whole phrase, your best life now, it's just, it's just so not biblical at all. The irony is, of course, that for many of the people who go to those kind of churches, it's completely true. They are having their best life now. Because if they reject the gospel, that's all they're going to get. But we have a, a kingdom to come. We have a hope that is sure. We have our best life ahead of us. And so, are we by faith going to live as if our best life is to come, or are we going to compromise our faith because we're so determined to make this lousy life just a little bit better than it currently is? Are we so desperate for that extra few bucks, that extra bit of time, that extra bit of sunlight in our lives, so to speak, that we're prepared to compromise our faith? That's the million-dollar question. Are we prepared to endure hardship, to do what's right? Are we prepared? And that's, of course, where he then takes us. This is the logical flow of the passage. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Always makes me think of poor Jeremiah. I love that passage in Jeremiah. I think off the top of my head it's chapter 22. But there's Jeremiah and he's preaching again this bad news that nobody wants to hear. They've got all these false prophets that are giving them wonderful news. Kind of like today, you know. Everything's good. Best life now. Don't you worry. All good. And Jeremiah is the bad guy in their eyes. He's, he's preaching nasty stuff. He's preaching hardship. He's preaching judgment. They don't want to hear that. And so he's put in the stocks overnight. That'll shut him up. And of course he's let out the next morning and he preaches even more strongly. And then he he specifically points out that leader who put him in the stocks and he and his family will receive specific judgment. And that would be a great story if it ended there, wouldn't it? You know, boldness and what have you. But there's this little aftermath where Jeremiah turns to God and says, has this kind of conversation behind the scenes. And I'm paraphrasing very loosely here. But Jeremiah essentially says, you con me, God. When you called me to be a prophet, I had no idea it would be this. You know, when we see these great men of faith, right? We, we see, there's Jeremiah preaching even more strongly once he's let out of the stocks. Oh, what a man of faith. Yeah, he's a man of faith, but he has his struggles as well. When we step out for God, we're going to have our struggles. We're going to have our wrestlings. And Jeremiah said, God, I, I had no idea it was going to be this tough. I had no idea it was going to be this hard. 
He says, but there's a fire that burns in me and I cannot be silent. That's what it is. That's why people suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment. That's why. Because they could not compromise. They could not back down. Because their faith was in God. They were stoned. Zechariah, famously. They were sawn in two. We're doing Isaiah in the evenings. Isaiah uh, is not said specifically in the book of Isaiah, but church tradition teaches that Isaiah was sawn in two by Manasseh. Great ministry he had, didn't he? Hey, Isaiah, I want you to go and preach. But no one's allowed to understand or believe. They're all going to be blind. They're all going to be deaf. They're all going to, you're preaching judgment and they're going to reject you. And then at the end, we'll have you cut in two. And yet, there's 66 glorious chapters that are ours. And what the churches, and before, before the, the church, you know, the people of God, there was just, these books are this gift. But for us to get that gift... I mean, do you want your best life now? Do you want a comfortable life? I know it. At times I do. I don't necessarily want to be stoned or sawn in two or killed with a sword. I don't want to go around in skins of sheep and goat. I mean, you'd probably complain if I did, if I turned up with skins of sheep and goat. But you get the point. The idea is that these people weren't living in luxury. They didn't have much. Uh, they didn't have finances for nice clothes or to, to be able to even fit in within their society. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. That's quite a list, isn't it? The Bible doesn't offer you a comfortable life. This is what it offers you. This is the walk of faith. Are you prepared to live this life? Do you want to be mistreated? Do you want to be afflicted? Do you want to be destitute? I imagine we don't. But you've got to wrestle with that. I'm not saying get rid of all your belongings and go and live on the streets with, you know, killer goat somewhere so you can get yourself some clothing. I'm not saying that, but what I'm saying is be careful that these things don't become your idols. Don't, you, you've got to know that when it comes to that point, when you stand in front of your Red Sea, you've got to understand that you know that Christ is going to be your answer. The comfortable life or affliction in Christ? I choose Christ. Gun to your head. Deny your faith or a bullet in the head. I choose Christ. I choose Christ. I choose Christ. I choose Christ. And sometimes those big things are the easier ones. And sometimes it's the little things day to day where we just get the, the faith sucked out of us, the distractions of the world. But hey, funnily enough, he's going to come to that in chapter 12. So we'll leave that for then. But you get the idea. And then he says in verse 38 of these people, I love this so much. Of whom the world was not worthy. I'm going to come back to that. I'm going to come back to that. Wandering about in deserts 
and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. <laughs> Poor David, what did he think when he was being pursued by Saul? He'd been anointed as king. God says you're going to be king. And here he is running for his life from the guy who was supposed to be his mentor. Just didn't look right. How many times in your life do you just look at things in your life and you just think, this is not how it's supposed to be. This wasn't in the plan. This, ha this wasn't how it's supposed to end up. And yet, these people were people of whom the world was not worthy. Sometimes we want the world. Sometimes we want its comfort. We want everything just to stop for a minute. <laughs> Time out, God. Just give us a break right now. Do you want to be a person of the world? Or do you want to be a person of whom the world's not worthy? That's the decision we have to make every day. Every day. There's a scene from a movie, I'm not recommending it, I'm just, it's a good example, where life in this movie is an illusion. Some of you are familiar with The Matrix. And uh, there's a scene where the guy is about to betray his friends and he's eating a steak. And he says to them, he says, I know this steak isn't real, he says. The, the idea, the premise is that the whole world is really just a program and, you know, the things that we touch and we taste, they aren't actually real. It's all an illusion. And he, he, he's given a steak dinner and he says, I know this isn't real, but it tastes so good. And he sells out his friends for the taste of a steak. He's been eating slop working as a resistance fighter, and he eats a steak, and he says, this is, I know it's not real, but it doesn't matter. It just tastes so good. And I tell you what, that, that scene, that concept, has just impacted my life so much because I've seen friend after friend, family member after family member. I've seen people I love with every ounce of my heart who know that that steak isn't real, who know that what they're what they're, what they're compromising for is, is foolish and wasteful and, and, and will not be worth anything in eternity. And yet it tastes so good that they compromise. And it's the saddest story that God would save us by the grace of the blood of his son and that we would then just get distracted from the glorious life that he has for us. Not an easy one, not a pleasant one at times. But we would get distracted by fool's gold. By things that we know aren't real. That we know won't last. And we make decisions that affect our lives. That affect the lives of those around us. All because we want to have a nice, comfortable life. If you are a person who is tempted by comfort, tempted by 
the things of this world, you've just got to read this passage again and again and again until God just gets it into you that this is not what you're called to. This is what you might well be called to. And I don't have any easy answers for you. You won't want what you're given any more than I wanted what I was given or any of us are wanted. I was talking again just this morning before the service to someone just... We have become a generation of church that knows how to rejoice together, right? We come together and we're like, whatever's happened in our lives, Jesus loves us, so here, let's rejoice together. But we're not very good at lamenting together, are we? And there's a heck of a lot of psalms that are lament psalms. And we've got to learn what it is to walk as a community where people are mistreated and despised and who suffer loss. We've got to learn what it means to be family, to love one another in the midst of that. And churches typically don't do it very well. I have it on record, this is the best one I've ever been to on that point. But we all need to keep working at it. We need to love one another in the midst of suffering, and particularly suffering that comes, because we will not compromise. And he sums it up in these last two verses, and let's end here. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. They're not going to be made perfect. They're not going to be sanctified. They're not going to have everything good apart from us. They don't get to have everything work out however many thousand years ago. There will come a time when God is going to put everything right and he will put everything right. There'll come a time when we get our best life. There'll come a time when all of this makes sense. Every failure, every stumbling, every, everything that we never signed up for, that we never wanted, that we would never have wished upon our worst enemy, that we had to endure, that all of it will make sense and God will be glorified and we will rejoice together and there will be no more suffering and there will be no more tears and it will happen together. But now... You won't receive what's promised. Now is the time for beating. Now is the time for being destitute. Now is the time for struggling. Now is the time for suffering. That's why there are lament psalms. Because this world sucks. There's so many blessings, there's so many good things, but every one of us has sin, and we live in the midst of a people of sin, and the whole of creation groans because of sin, and it affects every single one of us. And you can go and hide yourself away in a cave somewhere and you're still going to get older and you're still going to suffer. There is no escape from the effects of sin. None at all. And quite frankly, we all of us contribute to the mess that we live in. So we must lament together because this is not the life now. This is not the life that God has promised. This is not what we're waiting for. This is the time when we show our faith. Faith that will be rewarded when that day comes. Are you that kid who gets given a few bucks by their parent and immediately goes out and spends it on candy? Or are you the kid that can put it away and save it up? 
In other words, do we want immediate gratification right now? Are we going to satisfy our senses? Are we going to be people who just live doing what feels right, what makes sense, defending our rights, everything about us, are we the center of our universes, or are we going to sell out for Christ? Uh, is he our everything? Man, this is a rough passage, isn't it? This is the joy of going through these verses, verse by verse. You just can't escape this stuff. People he's writing to, remember as we end this up, and there's, there's lots of ramifications of this, and of course the author will take us on that journey as soon as we hit chapter 12 in two weeks' time. But the people who are listening to this text, the people to whom this was originally written, they are people who are on the brink of compromising their faith they were going back to the temple, offering animal sacrifices as if Christ had not come. They were living as if what Jesus had done hadn't been done. And what would happen if they continued in that is that when the Romans destroyed the temple and destroyed Jerusalem, they'd have died in the midst of it. And that's been our theme through the book of Hebrews. And I just want to say it to you guys one more time. There are consequences to sin. I have shown you, I believe capably through the text, that each of these famous warning passages in Hebrews are not speaking about loss of salvation, but they are nevertheless warning passages. They're passages. This whole section in chapter 11, remember those people? It comes from chapter 6 and verse 12, where in the midst of a warning passage, it was warning and pointing to the Old Testament. There are consequences to sin. And these people had a decision to make. Are you going to forget about Jesus and get on with your lives and do what makes sense to you? If you do, there's going to be consequences. And you know what? It doesn't matter if we're in a room of, of 10 people or 10,000 people. There's always going to be somebody who you can preach this very point to and they will still go out and do stuff that is more convenient for them regardless of Christ. And I've been a Christian long enough to see it so many times. And there's always consequences. But I long for the day. I long for the day. Because all I get to see in this life is I get to see the fruit of compromise. I get to see the consequences of turning away from Christ. But one day, I'll get to see you all enjoying your rewards because we trusted him. We didn't turn. We said, Jesus, I'll follow you, even to the point of taking up my cross. And one day those rewards will come. Not now. Not now. And that, my friends, is why it's called faith. I pray that our faith might be strengthened this day. Let's pray. Father, may we be people of whom this world is not worthy. May we not love the world, but may we love your Son. 
May we trust you. And Lord, may you strengthen our faith. When we're weak and when we compromise, lift us up. Help us again. May we not despise the testing and the trials that mature our faith. But may we trust the one who loves us. We're not God. We don't know. We have no idea. You do, and you're good. May we trust you in all things, no matter what they be. And may you be glorified through our lives of faith. Amen.